Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am your host, Michael Lilienthal, and over there in a room with Scotch is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Where? Where's... Oh, hi. Uh, that's me. Yep, that's it. I remembered. That's you. It's you. Good. You remembered. Yeah. That's... I mean, it's important to uh, know who you are and your identity and all the things about yourself so that there are no surprises. I'm just glad we both did such good physical comedy for that little bit we just did that everyone will definitely see and care about. Oh my goodness, we were so physical and um, just, it was so athletic and acrobatic and... Okay, this is a family show and that's the second episode in a row that I've had to tell you that. <laughs> well, and that's yell at you. your wife so that she comes and <laughs> reads the rules. This is not my problem. Well, speaking of my problem, hey, wife. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle, Gentle listener. listener. <laughs> oh boy, she gave me a real dirty look on that the back end of that one for some reason. I don't understand why. Yeah, I, don't... I mean, it's okay. I slept on the couch last week. I guess I'll sleep on the couch this week. You know, sometimes that's good for a marriage Is because it? then your wife doesn't have to listen to you snore, and she can get a good night's sleep. Well. And a well-rested wife is a good wife and a happy wife. And you know what they say, a well-rested wife, happy life. That's None of that has been my experience. But <laughs> please, no one tell Karen I said that. <laughs> what? Don't look at me like that. You know it's true. said a well-rested wife is a happy life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if I ever say the word wife, you should be suspicious. I know. <laughs> this is all staying in. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Schlank. Gross. <laughs> Oh, good. I don't know where my book went. Well, Ethan, we are 
continuing our discussion of Where the Light Fell by Philip Yancey. And we've we've had some good discussions about it already. Um, there are a couple of topics that I want to make sure we touch on, though, before we conclude um, our our main episode conversation about that. Of course, there's always the, the secret third episode we have about books that... Uh, aren't even released to patrons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, that's how how explicit and um, you'd think if we were going to have those conversations anyway, we would at least like get some extra value out Just of them. Put but... a microphone in front of us. Eh. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we do that? <laughs> uh, so, um, y- y- pointing out uh, the the manipulations of memoirs, and I mean manipulations in the the neutral sense of the the term, mm-hmm. just in organizing and and selecting, selecting. and uh, so forth, reconstructing. Um, whatever you want to say. Right. So, if, if we give Yancey here the benefit of the doubt that he's intending to be honest and present the truth. Um, which I think is a good place to to start with him. Um, at least in this narrative itself, he doesn't seem to give any indication that we should take him as an unreliable narrator. Um, although in terms of being a, a human being, he is certainly um, fallible. Right, and I think he'd be the first um, to admit that. But I do admire right. the amount of times... Again, we were... In the last episode, we talked quite a bit about sort of uh, some of the chapters towards the end of this book and in one of his late conversations with his mother, he goes so far as to like mention that he like, she's saying some upsetting things and he like picks up a, a pen and is like trying to write down word for word what she said. And Right. Right. While he's on the phone with yeah, her. Yep. I think that's not <laughs> the only place where he talks about like trying to record certain things like as they happen. Right. So. Right. If there is an opposite... Which is just stupendous foresight. Yeah, it is. And also, if there is an opposite of an unreliable narrator, while still, you know, being someone who is human, I feel like his his uh, narrator persona in this is uh, probably that. Right. Um, so, all that said, I want to point out something that I find just a little problematic. Yeah. And... I, I again in in the 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 theme of um, using the unloaded meanings of words, you know, with manipulations. I want to unload that word problematic, just and like let it be neutral um, here. But look, here's here's my problem. Um, on page two forty four, we we've been in this chapter before in our discussion. Um, it's the the chapter twenty one contact. Um, where he has his conversion experience, again, unloaded with any um, non-neutral mm-hmm. meaning. Um, uh, but at the top of 244, um, he ta- he's talking about his, his, his wife, who in the narrative is not yet his wife, Janet, and says, Janet gets painted with the same brush. She is the only woman in her dorm not assigned a roommate, lest she wrongly influence some impressionable young soul. Now, here's the thing, Ethan. Uh, that's on page 244. Go back to page 239. Um, 
where in the first full paragraph we read, That winter the campus receives a rare snowfall. Janet, reared in the Amazon jungle in South Florida, has never seen snow. She rushes out of the dorm in her bathrobe, no doubt breaking a rule, and her roommate snaps a photo that catches her in unimposed ecstasy. Um, now, this this could be... Th- there could be manifold uh, explanations for this discrepancy. That she is not assigned a roommate because if she were assigned a roommate, she would influence somebody, whereas previously she was assigned a roommate. I think the easiest explanation for this is um, in one year she had a roommate and then they're like, oh, no, you're a problem next year. You don't get one um, is probably the simplest. But I, I here I, I don't want to just gloss over this because of. First of all, the fact that on page 244, uh, this comes in that chapter, Contact, where he starts seeing things in a new light, where we have this tectonic shift uh, in his character. Um, and he's he's been feeling this uh, presence stalking him and, and is, is ready to pounce. Um, but then in page 239 in Tremors, uh, chapter 20, um, it, which the, these two... Um, things five pages apart are yet in two different chapters. Um, that paragraph comes right after Janet has quoted Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. Um, I find that to be a little bit coincidental. Uh, again, could be chalked up to a, a complete um, coincidence here. Um, I was trying to find it as well, um, where he... Um, just in, in kind of a, an offhanded way refers to uh, the Bible as a book that contains contradictions as well. Um, it's not particularly close in proximity to this, but, you know, it's one of those things that is is very common to to be pointed out where people are like, oh, the Bible contains these contradictions anyway. And so, like, I mean, we can debate that, but that's not the point. Um, so th- I, I think that's that's something that... Um, is is brought out here that uh, something that could have an explanation, something that uh, seems at least on the surface to have a contra- uh, a contradiction to it, could it may perhaps even more easily um, be assigned to oh uh, maybe it wasn't a roommate who took the picture, maybe that's just the first word that came to mind because it's someone coming out of the same dorm building as as she was, maybe it's a friend um, who lives in that building who's taking a picture too. So I mean again there are many many explanations. Um, for this, but this chapter tremors. So we talked last episode about the fact that, um, the chap chapter one, the secret, um, takes place in 1968. Um, and then it immediately jumps way back 20 plus years into the past, um, or 20 ish years into the past and then progresses and we're, we're waiting for it to catch up with itself. I think in or around chapter 20 is where it catches up with itself. Um, right around this time where this snowfall happens. Um, not not exactly that the seasons don't don't match up there, but, you know, around that time where, where the, the picture um, that the roommate takes uh, is, is taken. Um, because then in the following paragraph on page 239... Uh, after the the picture in the snowfall, uh, he says, "Beauty, joy, softness, unrestraint. I marvel at what she has so quickly summoned up in me. Hesitantly, I bring up stories from my past, stories I have never told anyone. Life in a trailer park, my deliberately broken arm, the turtle episode, my racism, mother's split personality, Marshall's mental breakdown." Uh, and he goes on to uh, describe their their 
uh, blossoming relationship here. Um, and a couple of things about that, that first of all, these stories that he has never told anyone are now stories that he has told us also as the reader. He he refers to each one of these and we know the, the chapters that he's talking about with all these things. Um, but then also the fact that he is opening up to her at this point and sharing with her all these stories. If you go back to chapter one, um, there's this uh, unspoken conversation um, that Janet and he have with their eyes on page five. Janet has finished reading this newspaper story about his father. Um, Why didn't you tell me about this? She asks with her eyes. I'm, I'm surprised because I didn't know. So it's one of those things where like, she assumes that she should know all about him, especially also that he's pointed out that, you know, this is the first girl that he's bringing home. And so it's, it's a big deal. This is very significant. It's serious. So she knows a lot about him. So um, again, the light fell here on these stories. He's opening up and he's learning how to reveal and, and open up. Uh, he says that at the end of that section on 239, my careful program of emotional self-control has disintegrated. Um, so he's been trying to keep himself in the dark, in the darkness. But now Janet is the one that um, makes him bring stuff out into the light. So I think that's where it catches up here. So um, we've got this this brief, ultimately totally meaningless contradiction here, which might not even be a contradiction. Um, also, that she has a roommate. She doesn't have a roommate. But I think um, even just uh, by virtue of it falling into this um, uh, coincidental conglomeration of of things here, uh, I think he is, again, pointing out something about his story uh, that it's it's not totally his and his memory is ultimately unreliable, but he is experiencing it. He is recalling it and he is receiving um, this, uh, this life and this, uh, light that, uh, that goes on from there. So all that, that I've just said, Ethan, um, uh, react. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think you'd like set it like it's, it's a, it's a really interesting, neat little package that you've, uh, put together from the details of this book. Um, it does almost seem like a genuine contradiction. Uh, uh, the the mm-hmm. roommate versus the she's not given a roommate. In that, if I'm understanding the timeline correctly, he meets Janet his sophomore year. Um, she's a couple three years older than mm-hmm. him, and then he proposes the idea of transferring to Wheaton College. Um, and. If, mm. it, if if I'm reading everything and remembering everything correctly, it's by the end of that year that they decide to transfer. Um, so unless it was like a, yeah. a first semester to second semester thing somehow, um, it feels like she mm. that roommate status probably didn't change. Though, I mean, you know, things can change between semesters and who knows when the snowfall could have happened, so... You know, it could have been in December, and if they had a if sure. the semesters, like most colleges um, probably would, if they changed over Christmas, then she might have mm-hmm. uh, uh, been, had a room, had no longer had a roommate over, you know, in the new semester, whatever. Um, I mean, the point, I guess, and this is the point that I come to uh, when we, and again, we don't have to, like, 
have this debate or litigation because it's not super in the scope of this discussion, but when people <laughs> talk about contradictions in the Bible, um, the point I come to right. is, like, what contradictions matter? Because, uh, you know, there are... Mm -hmm. if Even if you don't like the, the word contradictions, there are certainly difference, differences or divergences between... Um, the accounts of just to pick a specific example, the accounts of the resurrection in the gospels. Um, right. You know, even in, in one account at, at Jesus's uh, tomb on Easter Sunday, there are like two angels or three angels. And in one, there's just one angel potentially, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Which first of all is like, if you accept the premise that these are accounts being written by, multiple different eyewitnesses that's what you'd expect um because as i alluded to in the last episode mm -hmm. like human human uh perception is very fallible and we have sort of objectively recorded cases where we have say a car crash on video and then we have eyewitness evidence and they'll differ in things as big as like how many cars crashed or what the colors of the cars were or whatever um and the classical apologetic mm. response is to say, yeah, but, like, what's the difference between how many angels there were versus whether a, a man who was dead three days ago is alive now? Um, and I guess, you know, if I, right. if I really wanted to drill in, down into the, uh, the idea of contradictions or even, you know, the contradiction potentially between uh, 239 versus... Um, the, uh, I mean, one, one thing that occurs to me is like, I reread both of those passages tonight and didn't, uh, didn't catch that potential contradiction specifically because like Yancey's writing, just his prose is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I was just captured in the moment in each of those. Um, but right. again, also the, uh, the point of, of Janet you know, capturing the snowflake on her, on her tongue. This, this just gets back to kind of what you were saying, but you know, the point of that passage is not whether she had a roommate or not. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the, the point is sort of everything else about it. Uh, right. and again, you know, the point of 244, um, is more about whether she had a roommate, but like, even if he got that wrong somehow, or if, if that could be proven against him, like the point still stands that f because of their personalities, they probably were outcasts and pariahs um, to mm -hmm. some extent in this, in this setting. And I think the thing about like in fiction, wh why when you're looking at the idea of is a narrator unreliable, um, part of what you have to ask yourself is like, why does it matter? Um, and in fiction, that usually goes to what the themes of the story are or what the actual story is. Like in Gene Wolfe stories, often the narrator is lying for a very specific reason. And if you figure that out, it changes right. what you think the story is. Um, and that transfers over to real life because when you can catch people in contradictions or um, even, you know, sometimes the damaging thing is like, people will contradict details in the interest of creating certain emotional um, uh, moments or, or ideas. 
And if there is a contradiction here, I think that's probably where this lies, is that Yancey's writing to the emotion of a scene and not the not the um, sort of nitty-gritty mm-hmm. details. But again, I sort of like you said, I don't think it matters to these scenes and the way he's using them in the way that it would if he had some kind of vested interest in... Um, you know, if, if it were to grant him some kind of power or if he were defaming someone's character or some other way that it would, like, actually matter. Right. Um, but that said, like, to me, that feels like me reacting to the least interesting part of what you were just kind of saying. And, and uh, <laughs> I really like sort of the set of connections that you've drawn. I don't know that I would necessarily uh argue or or be able to back up the argument that Yancey intended all of them because like the Walt Whitman quote in with this is very interesting mm-hmm. but I don't know that that's a connection that he was intending however as our uh uh venerated um mentor and professor Dr. Hannah uh who has been quoted <laughs> on this podcast more than once as he always you know used to say if the if it's in the text, the author gets credit for it. So, um, yep. <laughs> just on that level, I'm comfortable saying that it's something Yancey does. Uh, I think I would probably be yeah. interested in Yancey's response uh, to it, but I, I certainly don't think it discredits certainly. him on any um, uh, meaningful or important level. Not that that's what you were saying. No, no, I, I don't. I don't think it discredits him at all. I, I don't think um, that, and that's certainly not my intention. I think more than anything. Um, well, perhaps uh, if it were to discredit him, I think that would be Yancey's intention. Oh, sure. yeah. Basically, that like you know, um, yeah, discredit sure. me. You know, because <laughs> it, it's it's the same sort of thing where. Uh, talking about that that reinterpretation of the parable of the good samaritan where he's trying to or he's been taught to put himself in the in the uh, mm-hmm. place of the good samaritan and love his fellow man and he's like no i can't do it and i don't care and i hate everybody uh but then it's shifted and so it's like no it don't worry about you you're not the good samaritan um jesus is and so uh having that shift which which does completely rock him and you know remove him from right. the center of the universe so to speak um is is ultimately for his yeah and i benefit. think that's the most interesting if you're giving him credit for this very subtle detailed way to contradict himself mm-hmm. um i think that's the most interesting version and true to like the greater themes is that if he is intentionally contradicting himself it's it's yeah to sort of point outward rather than inward in that way right Right, but you know, again, we might also be making a mountain out of. I think we hill. certainly are um, one way or the other, but too. you know, that's that's one the way or the other of this podcast. But... Right, right, yeah, yep. mountains out of molehills. That's that's it. Um, I so I, I uh, there's there's a a scene, and I don't know if it's necessarily directly related, but um, thinking about the craft. Uh, and, you know, certainly inserting a, a minor contradiction into the narrative would mm-hmm. fall under craft 
as well. Um, it's something that occurs very early on um, at the end of part two, where he's talking about his boyhood before part three um, getting to roots. Um, it, the the last chapter there, chapter nine, trailer trash. Um, there's this moment. So, and this this ties in with the the image that you were um, keying into last episode, Ethan. That of the the walk through the woods, um, because there in his boyhood, he he starts discovering walking through the woods, um, and and gets a lot out of that. But then there's this uh, event that occurs at the end of this chapter. Uh, it starts at the bottom of page 94. Uh, one day while hiking in the woods, I hear sounds coming from an abandoned shed. I find the shed now carpeted with hay and before me stands a creature as magical as a unicorn. So here he meets this this uh, tiny horse um, and Gus, the, the man who, who takes care of him, and he speaks through this hole in his neck. Um, and a, a device that's there, um, the, the Shetland pony, uh, whose name is tiny. Um, and he comes and, and takes care of her and, and feeds her a carrot or an apple. And, um, that's like this, this little moment of, of delight that he has in his, his boyhood, um, that he gets to come back to again and again. Um, and it's never returned to, which, um, you know, again, to to make this odious comparison between memoirs and novels in a novel you would almost have to you not necessarily um there there could certainly be situations where you wouldn't have to but um it feels like the sort of thing you would have to refer yeah. to in one way or another or at least explain yeah, why it something. didn't come again um but here you get this image for less than a full page uh, that seems so impactful for him, and then it's gone, uh, and it doesn't come back again. Um, and it, it's it, it's again one of those things that, he, and and this is how it ties a little bit into the the at least seeming contradiction uh, we were just talking about is that it it connects with this idea of how memory works. That here's this image, and maybe this is really all he remembers about this. And like maybe a few snatches here and there of um, brushing the brushing tiny or or giving a carrot or or something, um, but ultimately this this is it. This is all all he remembers about that, and the rest of it has has fallen away. Um, but it still remains in his memory as something that is impactful to him. And maybe he doesn't even know why necessarily, except that it had an impact, um, which is, is uh, again, I think tying back to this theme that he has in this memoir of uh, the the received life theme, that it's it's not his story, except that he's the one living it. Um, it's, it's something that's given to him and there's meaning here and he doesn't necessarily have the full picture of it yet. Um, so what is, what is it? And, you know, there's this, this joy in the midst of being trailer trash, uh, as, as a boy, you know, <laughs> and he's got this secret that, uh, is, it's not insidious. It's not a dark secret. It's, it's actually a pretty bright secret that he gets to keep for himself, um, I don't know. Did did that um, strike uh, no, you at I all? I mean, I didn't like really register that scene as particularly 
impactful um, until you talked about it just now. But the thing that strikes me, uh, and it, it has mm. to do with other territory we've covered, um, I think both in this and the last episode, but just the idea that like a really good writer and maybe especially a really good memoir writer um, to some extent is working in uh, fractals um where a fractal is something that like uh-huh. is a very large structure that is built out of very small structures that have the same structure so you have you know in screenplays they tell you that like you have a beginning you know or a an inciting incident a rising action a climax and a denouement over the course of the screenplay but every scene also has that structure um and I think this this scene is a really mm-hmm. good example of that kind of idea in a much more subtle and, and frankly interesting way um, in this. Like, it, this, this little scene contains a lot of the themes and a lot of the through lines um, of this book while also still being just sort of something that happened to Phil Yancey in his childhood or that happened to him at this point in the story. Um, so I do think it's really interesting mm-hmm. along, uh, along those lines. Uh, an- another thought that occurred to me about this too is, you know, that there might be more meaning to this as well. Um, I, I was just reading, um, another, another author describing an encounter where, um, from, from his memory that, uh, the details that stuck out to him about this encounter with this individual and, and he could describe, uh, in depth details about the appearance of this person, mm-hmm. um, and none of them lovely. Um, right. So, um, and similarly to Gus here, um, that we get this picture, uh, of this cowboyish rough person, um, who also has this hole in his neck with a, a device that lets him speak through it. Um, so a- again, the details are not necessarily lovely, but the thing that this author pointed out about the encounter he had with uh, a-, a woman um, who seemed just disgusting and ugly uh, to him was uh, what she said ultimately steered him back onto a good course uh, and he said, I'm pretty well convinced that <laughs> sure. that was an angel <laughs> in disguise. Uh, and so, you know, Yancey never says anything explicit like that, but just the way, uh, Gus here kind of appears on the scene and vanishes, mm-hmm. it is angelic almost, um, where you've got this, this figure who comes out of nowhere, um, and steers him in in a way that brings light and joy yeah. into his life and then is gone. Um and I, I think there's perhaps perhaps that's part of uh the the idea behind this yeah, little I, scene. Like Angel wouldn't have occurred to me, but I again now that you say it, I think it's valid to um and again, author intention could be any number of directions here, um, but it could be yeah that uh uh yancey is borrowing some of the the energy or the idea of an angelic being um 
without kind of naming it and without necessarily claiming mm-hmm. that that's what's happening that that this this character had an angelic function um mm-hmm. it because again it it you know uh sure. it almost has the feeling of a uh the the references to Christ as a priest of the order of Melchizedek and that you know if you if you yeah if you trace yep. that back uh, into the, that was the other thing I was going to say like, Melchizedek this order like comes out of nowhere and um uh seems to have almost a mm-hmm. uh um again like an angelic appearance in the sense that it like almost beams down into the text from nowhere does this very good thing and then beams back out again or at least mm-hmm. kind of disappears um right yeah right yeah, and that's that's very much in line with what what we have with Gus here. Gus and his Shetland pony, Tiny. Um, yeah, it like it feels like foreshadowing in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, the other thing it reminds me of just thinking of other memoirs that I have uh, uh, that I have read, including um, uh, Hannah Pittard's "We Are Too Many" that I. Again, comes up because I literally just read it, um, not on purpose for this record, but I'm not sorry about it. Uh, <laughs> but a common technique in memoir, especially the more sort of experimental ones or the like literary ones, if you think of like creative nonfiction that would come out of a an MFA in creative writing, um, tend to be much more fragmentary. And as I mentioned, I think last episode, they also tend to be much more... The timeline tends to be much more convoluted where you're starting somewhere and flashing forward and flashing back and flashing forward and flashing back. Um, But one thing that one technique that memoirs like that will often do is to uh, uh, take some scene that's like very far in the future of the main story that's being told and like doesn't explicitly spell out how it's related to the story like in a in sort of a plot um way but it's like self-contained within it is all of the themes Mm -hmm. that are that are going on or something like that and on a on a surface reading this feels a lot like that as well where it's like uh again thinking about like what details do you include in a book like this what what do you you know, sort of, sort of pick out from all of the many, many details of a life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, yeah, uh, uh, I don't know. It feels like, um, something like that, where it's like associated by virtue of of theme, and perhaps foreshadowing. Sure, um, and and you know, but again, you know the. Go ahead, sorry. Well, think, thinking about that idea of theme and foreshadowing, I think there's something um, to that with this event as well, that um, after this initial encounter with Tiny and Gus, uh, he says, from then on, I keep a carrot or an apple in my pocket, and as soon as school lets out, I head for the shed. I comb tone mm-hmm. Tiny, walk her around on a leash, and never tell a soul about her. Um, and so... I, I think what's being framed there is this relationship that he has with Tiny and what he's describing is what he's doing for Tiny, right? 
that he comes and he feeds Tiny, he takes care of Tiny, he walks Tiny around, but the ultimate meaning of this encounter is what he gets from Tiny. Um, so it's it's right here in this very childish sort of encounter, the exact same uh, interpretive uh, gloss, so to speak, on the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? His conversion experience uh, with scare quotes um, that, uh, you know, it, it, he has been trained then to emphasize what he's doing, what he needs to do, what he needs to give to others. When, in fact, the point that's being given to him is what he's receiving, um, what's what's being given to him out of all of this. And that's the ultimate meaning behind all of all of that. Um, and that, that thought just occurred to me as we were talking about this and, and looking at it again. Sure. But that's take that for for what you will. Um, right. I, I, I think there's. Um, you know, it, I, I haven't talked a ton of theology on our podcast in general, and this book seems almost like you're trying to, to force it out of me, Ethan. Um, but uh, you know. to be like, I want you to say whatever you were going to say sure. anyway. Um, to be fair, what I wanted to do was like force you to read this book and see what happened. Um, <laughs> sure. Because I knew it could be theological, or I knew it could be, you know, other things. So, uh, this was mostly just me sort of uh, uh, throwing spaghetti at the wall that is you and seeing what stuck and what you allowed to fall to the floor. Gotcha. All right. Well, it, you know, my in... favorite things to do, both literally and metaphorically, just throw spaghetti at me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think uh, that. To to put that theologically, in in terms that Yancey himself never uses, um, it's looking at the concepts of justification and sanctification, which are, are um, like classical Lutheran uh, order of uh, salvation and, and such. Where so um, the justification is the reception of of the salvation, and then the the sanctification is the outpouring thereafter. Um, that. So essentially, in other simpler terms, it's a uh, justification is Jesus saving you, and mm-hmm. sanctification is uh, good works or other things that follow yep. from that. Right, right. Um, and I don't know how how Yancey feels about those categories or those terms or or the concepts at all, but that that seems to tie into this experience with Tiny. Um, that you know having received this secret then he responds by providing the 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 food the fruits um the carrot and the apple and the brushing and the walking for tiny right um and then you can see that change in his life after his conversion that uh, after he sees jesus in the samaritan who comes in uh takes care of him who he recognizes now as the neediest of all that um the, the 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 thing I'm noticing is right after that, chapter 21, where he has that contact, chapter 22 is Marshall. So it, he, he receives it and then has to turn around um, and and share it and, and do the, the those good works and, and um, 
help someone else. And so he starts talking about Marshall and gives Marshall's story. Narratively speaking, what that does, you know, we talked about how we've got this climax of um, the the uh, conversion experience, and then we expect the, the denouement that we don't ever really get. Um, we would expect in that denouement for Marshall to have a parallel conversion. Um, yeah. Or something that's uh, along those lines that's that's concrete but instead marshall's story is left on a cliff you know he doesn't ever have that conversion experience he's still um opposed to their mother which yancy uh philip uh is is also um not necessarily totally friends with with their mother uh anymore but at least he 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 can talk with her like he also gets positioned as sort of the um mediator mediator man in the middle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sort of probably can see both sides right um in sort of a like tragic way that he probably when he's talking with his mother he like can sympathize with her but certainly when he's talking with his brother he understands the anger and the the reasons that his brother wouldn't want to um uh do anything give any ground like you know right I don't know if it's just because I'm an oldest sibling or from the Midwest or who I am as a person just generally, but it's like, I've been in that kind of, not, maybe not quite that like dramatically or, or, um, traumatically, I guess, but I've Mm. been in that kind of position of being in between two parties who, both have their reasons for being angry at the other one and kind of being able to see both sides. Um, Sure. But I do also want to say that uh, the, um, the, the stuff with Marshall, well, it's, it's sad and it's tragic in some ways. Um, Also, I think sets this memoir apart from a lot of, quote-unquote Christian media um Mm. specifically for the reason that you just said in that uh uh the fact that Yancey lets Marshall's story be such a big part of this narrative without trying to Mm -hmm. massage it into something that would like fit his ideology or his um uh desires even more closely um, because mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of certainly Christian fiction media, whether film or, or you know, written fiction, um, and even un- like unfortunately Christian nonfiction that would <laughs> violate that idea altogether. Because um, especially Protestant Christian narrative tends to be very uncomfortable with ambiguity and with tragedy. Mm-hmm. And what uh, uh, what Protestants have tended to do historically is try to mold narratives into being very victorious and very neat. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the re- the fact that Yancey completely resists that and does the opposite may have to do with the fact that like this memoir was not just. Um, covered and and did not just sell well in the christian world um you know Mm. yancey was featured on cnn and on Mm. many other platforms that that 
aren't explicitly faith-based at all, but we're engaged with this book and with the story it told. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I think that like the nuance and the um, uh, uh, willingness to grapple with the facts of real life that are not always like mm -hmm. neatly packaged to uh, uh, parallel the narrative of a religious faith, like the fact that he's willing to engage with all of that ambiguity and include it in his book, I think is probably a big part of why he both with this book and with others has appealed to audiences who are not traditionally consumers of religious material. Right. Well, part of, part of what he and his brother are traumatized by is this concept of the, the, I know capital or capitalize each word, victorious Christian life, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that term gets, gets brought up a couple of times and, and thrown out there, which, um, you know, if I'm going to bring in my, my theological hat into this, that's the, the Theologia Gloriae versus the Theologia Crucis, which is um, the, the theology of glory uh, versus the theology of the cross. Um, that uh, he, he has this line um, and like, I almost objected to it, but then he 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 fixed it. Um, I'm not going to find it exactly, but uh, he says something like the the New Testament uh, generally sees suffering as a bad thing. Um, and my my first thought was, wait, wait, does it? <laughs> uh, but then he says something like, but it's something it's uh, it's something that can be redeemed, one that can be redeemed. And I'm like, okay, all right. You, you're you're onto it. Um, that that idea of uh, the the theology of the cross, right? That the cross is something that Jesus asks his followers to bear. Um, as like it, a cross is a bad thing. Jesus goes around and heals people and performs these miracles of healing uh, and and things. But um, then he also asks people to to bear their crosses. So this suffering becomes something that is redeemed. So in terms of that victorious Christian life, you know, and the, the same trend of uh, Protestant fiction and stuff, we would get to this conversion and that would be the conclusion, right? That would be it. We would be done because we, we got the victory. Um, and it's like he, he earned that too through a very hard, long road. And um, even just to that point, there could be a lot of discussion had over this book that, you know, he's got this horrible traumatized past that ultimately ends with this conversion. But then ultimately, if you leave it there, you wind up with the same problem. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't actually solve anything. But by continuing on and saying the suffering doesn't go away um, just because I'm converted, instead, the suffering is redeemed. That's that's the that's the key difference here. That the suffering isn't gone. The suffering is redeemed, um, and that's that's his ultimate theme here too. Uh, and to that point, I think that's something uh, that that makes this book also um, kind of a, a a letter to his brother mm. um, in a way. I think I think he has Marshall in mind as a, a, a chunk of his intended audience mm. here. That. You know, he he said he has the line that, you know, if anybody asked him if his brother, if he thinks his brother would ever change, he would have to right. say no, he doesn't think so, um, which on the surface of it sounds pretty defeatist, but I don't think he's defeatist about it. Um, I think he's realistic, um, but hopeful. I have, I have the source page for both of the uh, bits you've oh, alluded great. to uh, here. Um, the one you just said. Um, the wounds of faith embed like permanent tattoos. 
Um, this is the top mm. of 298, the, the first full paragraph. Oh, great. Um, which I want to dwell on that for a second in a moment where a lot of people are leaving American Protestant Christianity because they've realized um, a lot of the things that I think Marshall realized, that um, a lot mm. of it has to do with culture and power and um, discomfort with change and materialism and pretentiousness um, and a lot of other things that affect human life but um, aren't necessarily biblical and the idea that like American Christianity almost from its root from the time of the pilgrims has to do with power and culture in a way that um, has caused a lot of pain and suffering um, so like the wounds of faith embed like permanent tattoos is a sentence that's earned and created through a ton of pain and a ton of um, trauma. Um, and then we get mm -hmm. to, do you think he will ever change? Friends ask me and I have to answer no. So like mm -hmm. he, again, Yancey is very honest and very, engaged with the ambiguity and the messiness of all of this um mm -hmm. so it's it's not a cynical no it's not a um dismissive no it's an honest no um right and then he follows that up with a remarkable answer so this is a remarkable three sentence paragraph um and his mm -hmm. his answer is it is never too late for grace and forgiveness unless a person determines it is. Um, mm -hmm. And then, just while we're sort of here, uh, the, the quote you alluded to slightly before that is towards the bottom of this page, the last full paragraph. The New Testament mm. presents suffering as a bad thing. Jesus, after all, devoted himself to acts of healing, yet one that can be redeemed. We have hope that on this broken planet, pain can be somehow useful, even redemptive. Um, and then I just mm -hmm. want to go on briefly, because he the very next sentence is, I've learned to find gratitude for those years under extreme fundamentalism. And again, that's another sentence mm -hmm. very much earned under years, if not decades, of pain and trauma. Um, right. But with grace sort of at its core. Uh uh, the idea of finding gratitude, finding uh, redemption in the in the in the trauma and in the pain is, you know, I think very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of lost the thread of what I was responding to from you. That's but, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, that that gets to the this this same point that you know it, it's not resolved because mm -hmm. life goes on. Um, that uh, it being nonfiction as a memoir, um, and uh, the the we we want that resolution, but we're not going to get it. And so it's it's actually a very compassionate thing that he does here, a very sympathetic thing um, by not letting it resolve because it's it 
also communicates to real life that doesn't resolve in a, a pretty little bow. Uh, and he's saying to you, you know, I get it. I'm here with you. And here's here's some compassion for that lack of resolution. Um, and it's in some ways, this book is, is very hard to get through because you get this this darkness and defeat and darkness and defeat and suffering and pain and trauma and horrible, horrible, horrible experiences throughout his whole life. And it's like, what what am I even reading this for? If if I didn't know um, ultimately that he's writing from some sort of Christian perspective too, um, that this all that he suffers and goes through would seem ultimately meaningless, and it's like why am I reading this? But I I, I read it through to look for what his resolution is, right? I, I I crave that resolution. And that's why I think anybody would read this is they need that redemption, whether it's a Christian redemption or um, just some sort of personal um, resolution to, to things. Right. And that's why they go through. But ultimately his point by going through all of that is you're not always going to feel that. You're not always going to see that. And wherever you are, uh, there can be and is compassion um yeah for you uh and and it occurred to me as you were saying that that maybe this is sort of uh uh the um another answer to your question i think from last episode of like why is this called where the light Mm -hmm. fell that maybe part of that titling Mm -hmm. is literally just giving you a, a hint through some of the darker portions of this book that like there is a place where the light fell. Like, this is where we're going. Um, so, like, right. you know, stay with me here. Right, right. The, like, there is hope. There yeah. is there is the light. Uh, even through all of this, this these dark, yeah. dark places. Um, yeah. Well, as, as we're nearing the uh, end of our time here... Ethan, is there more that you specifically want to discuss um, about this book? I have one or two things I want to say, but I think they will actually go really neatly in my rating of this book. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Save it for that. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, well, then, uh, now concluding our, our discussion of the book... Uh, Ethan, this is also the conclusion of our fourth episode in drinking the Shield Egg Speyside 12-Year Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Uh, And and having, like, had a, like, really sort of in-depth discussion about numinousness and and, uh, God Mm -hmm. and theology and uh, suffering and redemption, let's do a real silly a bit here please <laughs> and like I'm now, being, now i'm being somewhat sarcastic but also if we don't do one i might cry so like <laughs> uh i do need this good good yes we need this um so uh i i i, I submit to you ethan that um since we, no one has broken a rule um uh, and that means that we we, we both, both lose and we both yeah. broke a rule. Um, let me see. 
Uh, oops. Oh, I am trying to find, I, I would like to do a Shakespeare race, if you will. I assumed that was what was going to happen. And I have one for you. And I suggest we start at line eight. So this is Much Ado About Nothing by William Shakespeare. Uh, looking at Act 2, Scene 3, starting at line 8. This is a monologue that Benedict, Benedict. has. Um, so I would like to report that you did very nicely send me uh, a link to this monologue. What I have done instead is pick <laughs> up um, the copy that Lydia Grabow from our crossover Much Ado special did leave on the table that I use for recording uh -huh. about a month ago and that I do still have because I'm a terrible friend who doesn't, like, mail things back <laughs> to people. Uh, so I am reading this Good. from the text, like, the physical text, and that makes me slightly okay. better. That does, that does make you slightly better, yes. Um, yes, you, you get the leg up on that. So just for uh, coordination, Benedict, I know that, but I would have the Henson here again. Right after that. I do much so wonder. So starting, I do much wonder. Okay. Yes. Yep. So, yes. Because after that, uh, the boy exits. And going from there down to line 36, the end of, of his monologue. So lines 8 through 36. I will hide me in the arbor. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll, we'll do our, our uh, traditional Shakespeare race on this. Uh, if you are ready, Ethan. Yes. All right. I'll say in three, two, one. I do much wonder, I do much that, one wonder that one man seeing how much another man is a fool when he dedicates his behavior to love will after he hath laughed at such shallow follies and others become the argument of his own scorn. By falling in love and such a man is Claudio, I have known when there was no music with him but the drum of the fife, and now he... I have known when he would have walked ten miles afoot to see a good armor. Mile afoot to see a good armor, and now he lied ten nights awake, carving the fashion of a new doublet. He was wont to speak plain into the purpose like an honest man and soldier, and now he's turned to the orthography. His words are a very fantastical banquet, just so many strange dishes, dishes may I be so converted and see with these eyes I cannot tell I think not I will not be sworn but love may transform me to an oyster but I'll take my oath on it until he have made me an oyster of me he shall never make me such a fool one woman is fair yet I am well another is wise yet I am well another virtuous yet I am well but till all graces be in one woman one woman shall not come in my grace she shall be that certain wise or all none virtuous or I'll never achieve in her fair or I'll never look on her mild or come not near me noble or not for not I for an angel of good discourse an excellent musician and her hair shall be what color please God ha the prince and monsieur love I will hide me in the arbor <laughs> I will say I got pretty far in this race feeling fairly competitive at a certain point. Uh, wait, I'm going to go back and we're, we're play play by playing this. I think it was at the classic one that you got ahead of me. Uh, uh, one woman is fair, but I am well. Uh, one another is wise, mm -hmm. but I'm well. Um, because uh, you just started rattling those off as if from memory, which now that I think about it and the fact that you have, over the last few months, cut this play and rehearsed it at least a dozen times, like, feels unfair, but um, <laughs> I accepted the premise to begin with, so anyway, that's where I sort of fell off and then decided to just uh, say the best, like, clause 
from the end of this <laughs> monologue and then just let you have your victory. So congratulations. <laughs> I hope you're happy. I I am I am happy and uh yes I I, I didn't want to uh give the game away on the on the fact that yes I stacked the deck in my favor but um I mean I could have called you, you out as on you it. said you accepted yeah, the premise I could have called so. you out on it but to begin with and here we are <laughs> here we are here we are Oh, all right. Now that we're we're through that, um, Ethan, would you please for us rate this Scotch Shield Egg twelve year Space Side Single Malt Scotch Whiskey? Um, out of five, I'm going to rate it a friendly three point five. And by friendly, mm. I mean that I feel like it's my friend, and I feel slightly bad rating it a three point five as opposed to a higher score. <laughs> um, but I feel like it's pretty solidly there in terms of complexity, quality, um, and personal preference. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very good. It's a it's a very nice scotch. Like, I don't think if I wanted a scotch, I don't think I would ever be sorry to be drinking the scotch. Um. It has some very nice sort of grassy notes and herbal notes and even um, like mineral notes, I would say. Um, it's very warm. Mm. There's very little burn to it. Like it's not. A, and I think I mentioned this briefly um, in mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nobody's Angel because I wanted the scotch for that one to be meaner. And this just isn't a mean scotch. Um <gasps> Mm-hmm. And, you know, objectively, sort of apart from pairings, I appreciate that about it. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, three solid 3.5. 3.5 to me is, like, much better than average, just not, you know, in the realm of my favorites of all time. Right. Um, I, I'm putting this solidly at a 3 for more or less the sure. same reasons. Um, if I, if I saw this at the, at the liquor store and their selection was such that, uh, nothing else was, was really standing out to me, I would not have a problem choosing this, Mm -hmm. this scotch. Um, like you say, it is very friendly. It's, it's inoffensive. Um, uh, it's very sweet. Um, I I shouldn't say very sweet. It's, it's sweet. sweet. I wouldn't say very. Um, it's got some fruitiness. Uh, it, not very, um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it just seems mellow and like, I could, I could relax with this scotch. Um, if I, if I want to have a real conversation with a scotch, this, this one isn't going to be a good conversationalist. Um, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's the scotch but, you want as your bartender, but not as your best friend. Yeah, that's about right. Yep. So that's that's where I'm sitting with this and this one um, here. I, I like what you said about the mineral notes. That's that's something that I didn't uh, I, I couldn't quite nail down. But yeah, for sure. Um, I think you're I think you're right on with that. So um, good. Well, what about the book, Ethan? Bye 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 bye, bye 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 bye. You didn't even let me give you the scale. Sorry, I got excited. Okay, all right. So um, yes, on this scale of buy, borrow, or forget about it, 
You say bye. Bye, 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 bye. Yes, thank you. Explain yourself. Um, I love this book. This book makes me cry. This book makes me cry. Just when I go back and read random paragraphs from it. Um, and there are two things that I wanted to mention in our mm. discussion um, that I think are relevant to this rating. Number one, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, if you have any uh, uh, to share, but something that I thought about bringing up or that I thought about asking you in the course of this this discussion is... Imagine you're recommending this book to a person who is not necessarily a person of faith, doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. care explicitly about the Christianity of it. Um, mm -hmm. Could you recommend this to them? And I think, to me, the answer, by and large, is yes. Because I think mm -hmm. that um, in the way that the best works of Christian literature, especially... Um, uh, have of like reaching out past the boundaries of you know sort of the artificial boundaries of of church or people of faith or whatever um that this one does that in the same way that like for example the chronicles of narnia do like the lion the witch in the wardrobe is an explicit like christian story lewis resisted the term allegory so i won't use it but it's very christian mm. but in a way that also many people of many different faiths or non-faith um, have been able to identify with. And I think in a lot of ways, Yancey's account of trauma and um, especially his his relationship with his mother and with his brother, I think like tell an account of pain and the redemption from pain and not only his mother and his brother, but his wife, as far as the redemption mm -hmm. goes. Um, I think they tell a story that, like, even if someone was not a Christian or not interested in Christianity, that there's a a universalness or a a, a reaching out that this book does. Um, that I think you're more likely to be interested in it or to like it if you are a Christian, but I I think that it's not sort of limited to that. Um, mm -hmm. and I just, beyond that, Yancey's prose, uh, just the, the warmth and the compassion that he has for like everybody, both in the story and reading the story. Um, there's a lot of mm -hmm. reasons, even without like explicitly caring about the, like, uh, am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian aspect of it? I think there's a lot of reasons beyond that too. um, read this book that there wouldn't be to read a lot of sort of religiously inflected books. Mm -hmm. Um, the second thing that I wanted to mention and that has to do with my rating, um, is that I feel like this is a book that really cries out for conversation. Um, mm. contrary to what I might've said, because I am vast and contain multitudes. Um, <laughs> I didn't actually bring this book just to be the first one to bring a memoir to this podcast. I got recommended this book by my father, who is one of my like mm. faith role models as well as just general role models. Um, and my father has been a fan of Philip Yancey for years. Because um, he looks a little bit like him. <laughs> I have no comment on that, and I doubt 
I, I expect he would plead the fifth. Um, but uh, it's a great point nonetheless. Um, yeah, no, like the couple other Yancey books that I have read were explicitly books I borrowed from him. And he read this memoir mm. nearly hot off the presses. And and he doesn't, he, he's very selective about what books he does this with. But he said, like, Ethan, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. Mm. And um, his recommendation was strong enough that I, like, prioritized it. And I did get it and read it. And then it was, like, for the next, after I had started reading it, for the next several conversations, it was, like, all we could talk about. And sure. that just seemed like a natural reason to bring this book to this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that was, again, sort of the other version or the the very well I contradict myself version of um, why <laughs> I needed to shove it down your uh, metaphorical gullet. Um, mm-hmm. And that I think, again, like this book, if you have, if you've listened to both of these episodes haven't read this book and anything that we've said about any of it connects with you at all i think that like you will want to read it and want to find someone else to read it with you and talk to about it um Mm -hmm. and to me that's just like among whatever whatever else that's like all of the signs of a book that needs to be bought and needs to be read Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. good well, I'm I'm also gonna rate it a buy. I don't know if that's a surprise at all, um, but uh, it, it, you know, you're bringing up this. Can you recommend this book to a a, a non Christian or a, a person who's not of faith? Um, absolutely. Um, and I I think it's it's super easy because it's it's a human story, um, about darkness and compassion in that darkness and it it's something that you know just even personally i I, i've been wanting to to come to more and more this um willingness to sit in pain with people uh and to allow present circumstances to be what they are and it's super hard for for us as human beings to do that but this book can provide a platform uh, to do that sort of thing where we can sit and be in someone else's pain and that can then translate into um, interpersonal uh, relationships and and sitting in, in that pain together um, and having a real conversation in those, those terms as well. Um, I, I think it has more to say uh, in terms of, of faith discussions and things as well, but not exclusively. Um, yeah, I didn't... I... Just just by virtue of it being an, a so open and honest conversation about this human being's experiences uh, in life and beliefs and how honest he is about uh, who he was and how he can describe himself in such terms that you are simultaneously revulsed by him and also uh, have compassion on him. Um, the, the narrator himself, like there, there are times when he's describing his younger self. It's like, I hate this person and I love this person. Which is a, a process <laughs> um, that we all go through, right? Like, you know, right, I look back exactly. at, uh, 
say, 22-year-old Ethan, when you and I both knew each other at that point and were friends, but, like, there are things that 22-year-old Ethan did that I was like, yeah, I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but, no, so I, it, it being so relatable and also having some immense use mm. to it, I think it'd be easy for me to recommend to literally anybody yeah. and i just wanted like you you reminded me that like i didn't want to say that uh i don't want to exclude the idea of the faith aspects and the the theological aspects i just think that like, oh sure you can recommend it on both levels or both sides for mm-hmm. sure. right uh well what about the pairing ethan between the scotch and the book uh for shield egg 12 and where the light fell pretty perfect match pretty good match slight mismatch or total mismatch i'm gonna say pretty good match um much more Mm. so than uh again with nobody's angel the last book we drank the scotch with because um as i mentioned in my scotch rating like this scotch feels fairly friendly and fairly warm and nice and it feels to me Mm -hmm. like the impression i would get of Philip Yancey, like, if I just hung out with him for an evening. Um, the only mm-hmm. reason I say pretty good match rather than perfect match is that, like, as we sort of both alluded to, this isn't the most complex scotch, and I feel like Yancey, mm-hmm. if you were going to do a perfect match, he deserves a much more intelligent and complex scotch than this one is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, I'm going to go a step the other direction and say a slight mismatch. Um, I think it is just... I can't think of a better way to say it than too vanilla. (laughs) It doesn't contain enough multitudes. Um, (laughs) It doesn't contain enough multitudes, yes. Uh, There's certainly complex flavors to it, and I I like the scotch, um, and I like the book. I just don't think it it, uh, converses well with with the that book. feels like sort of so, a version of that's, what i said or mine feels like a version of what you said but sort of you know the the heads and tails version of the eh. uh two-faced coin right it's yeah i, I think i think we're on the same page yeah, so sorry because we always are Yet we're again, always on the same man. page it's, it's what the whole podcast when, is about okay <laughs> i do want to like acknowledge your same page uh, metaphor and i also do want to apologize to nat for the fact that even when we slightly disagree we manage to agree <laughs> right <laughs> yes yeah, it's inevitable all right well ethan what are we going to be reading and discussing well next michael time? our next book for this podcast uh is our mondo book for the year and that book is a little book you might have heard of or our listeners might have heard of uh called war and peace um by leonardo tolstoy um sorry leo (laughs) tolstoy sorry uh yeah no leo tolstoy um unless it's Fyodor dostoevsky anyway um we will, I assume, both be reading. Is that racist? <laughs> I have no comment on that. Um, 
I was going to say, we will, I assume, both be reading it in English translations. Uh, but, yes, yes, we are both going to be reading, or we are going to be reading War and Peace. Uh, pretty big book. Pretty, pretty long, pretty long big book for us to be talking about for four episodes instead of two. Right. Yes, uh, and I, I think we're probably going to be reading different translations of this. Uh, my copy is a translation from 2007 by Richard Pevere and Larissa Volokonsky. Um, and I have read it before, uh, and they have in their introduction some of their translation sure. philosophy, which is um, pretty interesting and pretty cool. So um, I'll probably refer to that a little bit uh, when we discuss the book um, itself. But Yeah, that's, you that's are the reading a different translation from me because I am reading the one uh two translators so i'm reading the one that was originally produced in just trying to find it like in real time <laughs> here we are um so i'm reading a version of a translation originally produced in 1923 by a british couple named mm. aylmer and louise maud that was then revised and updated <laughs> in uh uh this century um in 2010 by um amy mandelek mandelker um and basically the mod translation is considered one of the classic translations um this couple knew tolstoy um and and their translation is considered very beautiful and very uh, uh a lot of it has a lot of fidelity um and then Amy Mandelker came along in the 21st century and just sort of, I think she knows Russian and was working from the original, but updated the mod translation to more of a 21st century audience. Um, I have read mm. War and Peace before, and I believe I read the Constance Garnett version, which is another kind of uh, solid... Uh, mm. uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I've read the anthony briggs translation um mm. which is another sort of from what i can tell considered kind of a good beginner translation so yeah fair uh with all that very interesting translation talk um that's our yes. introduction of war and peace excellent uh and so read along with us gentle listener and contact us on our website uh, and through our various social medias. Uh, and until next time, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry if we have to read War and Peace. And we do ha have to, so we will cry. We do. <laughs> <laughs>